As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Show and our Champions League round of 16 review. Real Madrid spent Valentine's week in Paris, but there wasn't much love for their display. Salah and Firmino were heroes at the San Siro as Inter shots on target tally red zero. There's no away goals, but there were still holes in Bayern's back line. And Man City gave us a sterling performance in Lisbon, where Portugal's best defence was about as strong as Graham Rutherford's best defence of the terrible food that he eats all the time. Wow. My name's Ryan. Ryan Bailey joining us today is a man currently serving a life sentence for murdering Graham on air yesterday. Joe Lowry, hello. Yeah, Ryan, the, the reception and the, the signal from this prison cell is a lot better than I thought it would be. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to be on today, but I'm happy to be back. Uh, very happy to have you. Orange is your colour. Looking good, right, Joe. Right. Looking good. Uh, mm. Also here is, uh, is your victim. He's uh... a... <laughs> he's, uh, he's barely here, though, because none of the food he likes has enough nutrients to sustain human life, Graham. Is that right? I mean, I am recording with a chip and bean butty in each hand just to spite all of you. Uh, <laughs> I made it specifically for this recording. I hope that's true and you hold them for the entire recording, Graham. Just to prove a point. Just to prove a point. <laughs> <laughs> Rounding out our intrepid pack for this recording, it's a man who just found out what the British equivalent of dollatry is called. Taylor Rockwell, hello. <laughs> hello. I've already forgotten, but I know it was hilarious and I really enjoyed... Uh, the British people who follow my Twitter account not being certain why I thought it was so funny, but I did enjoy it very much, and I enjoy that you both immediately confirmed that that is what that story is called. Uh, Taylor, if I said to you, would you like me to take you to Poundland, what would you say? I mean, I've been waiting, Ryan. I'm so excited. <laughs> what, what, what do you find in Poundland, everything. genuinely speaking? Everything. It's an everything store. You can get anything okay. you want in Poundland. All right. But is it like, is it similar to Dollar Tree here where you're getting... Lots of things, but maybe not superior quality things. Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I don't know if they're sponsoring this podcast or not, but uh, (laughs) they're not. Yeah, not anymore, (laughs) at the very least. Yeah, Yeah, I I couldn't actually answer that question because I'm not street trash like Graham. I've not been there, I'm afraid. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Ryan, you start these off on such an optimistic (laughs) note. Graham, Graham, do you just feel like besieged from like the start of recording, basically? 
Yeah, I mean, it's the Scottish <laughs> complex, isn't it? This is just kind of how it's been for, like, thousands of years up until this point. Graham knows that I love him and has a big hug coming his way. I'm not sure it. that feeling is mutual at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and not just because I don't like hugs or emotion or anything like that. Well, I'll tell you what, gents, you know what I love? Paris Saint-Germain and Kylian Mbappe in particular. Oh, Let's oh get boy. into the Champions League show. We had four games this week. Uh, the headline, perhaps, from Tuesday, Paris Saint-Germain against Real Madrid. Uh, PSG getting a 1-0 win at an electric Parc de Prince stadium. Good atmosphere in there, it sounded like. And the brilliant Kylian Mbappe getting the winner in injury time with a brilliant assist from uh, a substitute named Neymar as well after a less than brilliant performance from a guy called Leo Messi who missed a penalty earlier on in this game. Graham, I'll come to you first. This was all PSG for the most part. Um, you know, albeit a lot of their attacking possession was a bit sterile. They're kind of like sharks circling the prey without taking a bite quite a lot of the time. And you could say that Thibaut Courtois, you know, prevented a big, big PSG win here in some respects. But I want to talk about Real Madrid because we, we, we talked about this on our group chat. It, it did seem they were playing for a nil-nil, Graham. Um, no shots on target here. I, it's not just that they were sitting deep and trying to defend. I'd never seen them with this sort of level of lack of control, if you will. Mm. It seemed like they. It seemed like an FA Cup game between like Man City and like a non-league team. Um, you know, there's. They looked intimidated. I suppose is what I. The impression I got, Grant. Did you get that impression too? I, I I get why you're saying that, and and I don't think Real Madrid's game plan worked as as they as they wanted. Uh, looking at the fundamentals of their approach, they did play how I thought they were going to play. I did think they were going to sit deep and then try and hit out on the on the counter-attack. It was that latter part that was missing. There was just no sort yeah. of forward thrust. They weren't yeah. getting forward in any way, shape or form. I thought it was, a, it was a bad night for Real Madrid, Ryan, but it was a good night for your Tony Crow's theory because I thought he it had a, a poor game. He was just unable to get his foot on the ball. And so Real Madrid had a poor game. So they, um, the, the two teams were kind of matched up similarly in terms of their formation. Both are a 4-3-3. And in a lot of ways, Real Madrid and PSG are quite similar in terms of, the, of how they generally play. But I don't think you can argue that PSG were the, the side that were really taking the match to Real Madrid. Even when there wasn't much penetration to their attacking play, they were still the ones with the, the territory and the possession. And then once they introduced Neymar, and I, I know there's a lot of chat around Neymar and his career maybe hasn't panned out as we thought it, it might in, in, in Paris. Um, but... I thought his little cameo off the bench was a reminder of the player that he can be. Ryan, you mentioned his assist for the goal. And when he came off, it just felt like PSG cranked it up that little bit more. There was more penetration. Even when he's not doing something with the ball, he's he's attracting players away from Mbappe. So for the goal, if you look at Neymar's role in that, obviously there's a nice little back heel. But the, the important part of that is, I think it's uh, Casemiro and Vazquez. Go with him and leave Mbappe, and Mbappe still has Carvajal on him, but by the time he gets the ball, he's got a running start on Carvajal, he's got a few yards to, to get going before he reaches Carvajal, and that, that made the, the difference. So I I, um, I do think it's a, it was a reminder that this team, this shouldn't be surprising, because obviously Neymar is a brilliant player, but sometimes we get confused about what his role is in this team, but they are a, a better, more effective side when he's playing. Yeah, and I think he did help put a bit more pressure on than Dean Maria did. Coming on, it did seem like a bit of a game changer for, for this one, Graham. Um, Kylian Mbappe, we should probably talk about him at this point as well. Pretty breathtaking. I think, I, I, uh, Taylor, 
watching him play, I ne- I'm never not amazed by the way he, his pace, the way even after 80 minutes or so, he's chasing everything down. And if you look at the run he made for the goal, which is a breathtaking goal, it was very, very similar to the run he made to win the penalty as well. And it's like they knew it was going to happen again. It did. And, you know, it, it just he's just he's just great, Taylor. I like him a lot. He he does make it. He's like a reminder of why this sport is fun to watch, even if at times demanding to watch. Uh, and and I think the acceleration is such a key part of that. How quickly he can get to top speed in so few steps and with the ball under control at the same time. That's kind of the dual threat. Is he has this insane acceleration uh, coupled with a, a great ability to decelerate while keeping the ball under control and. I, and I think of it as like when I'm trying to do a step over, when I'm trying to do a move, I'm sort of like, I'll try that. And then like give up halfway through or kind of lose track of what I'm doing. You can tell with him that he is like in control of all of his faculties the entire time he is doing anything. And to have that level of athleticism combined with that level of awareness is just amazing to watch. He really is so fun. I think less fun if you are Real Madrid, who I, I agree with Graham. I think we're trying to basically just contain and frustrate and I think hope that PSG would maybe get overextended, would feel the pressure, would overcommit numbers and then get caught on the break and then overextend again and maybe it would end up being Madrid's day. Not the case. And I think Neymar coming on made a big difference, but obviously Mbappe was the difference on the day. I'd I'd say Taylor Mbappe was a, a bittersweet experience for Real Madrid because obviously he was yeah. pretty good here, but also he's made no secret of his desire to come to Madrid and he gave interviews in perfect Spanish yeah, afterwards. <laughs> I didn't know he could speak Spanish, so that was quite uh, an Very insight well into where he sees his future. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit. I also enjoyed uh, a buddy of mine sent me a video that was like a kind of edited together FIFA montage of Mbappe missing chances, missing chances, and then uh, computer Mbappe finally scoring and running off to celebrate with uh, the rest of the Real Madrid team, which did feel like maybe an element <laughs> of what we're going to get uh, next season, for sure. Maybe so. Uh, as for this week, uh, Arizona Joe, lay down the uh, the tactics, what you saw here from both teams. Oh, baby. Okay, I'll start with PSG because they really were the protagonists in this game. On paper, they're in this 4-3-3 shape with Messi as the 9, Mbappe on the left, Di Maria on the right, three central midfielders in that back four. In possession, though, which is where they were for the vast majority of this game, it became a 3-3-4 shape, which is not a shape we see all that often. Front fours aren't especially common. More often, you'll see a front five, where you have the wingbacks pushing up, you have the wingers tucking inside, and you have a nine, or, or some combination of players is forming that front five. But in this game, Pochettino went for more of a 3-3-4 shape. So the the narrow part of that front four with Kylian Mbappe and Angel Di Maria, the fullbacks then pushed up and still provided width. So you had Hakimi on that right side is really the focal point there. Then you had Messi going wherever he wants, yes, but really dropping into a right-sided central midfield role. And in, in order for him to be able to drop into that space, Danilo Pereira dropped into the back line. So he was nominally their right-sided central midfielder, but he dropped to the right center-back spot to join up with the other two center-backs. Then you had Verratti and Paredes as the other two central midfielders along with Messi. And you have this really fluid, dangerous possession shape. And as as dangerous as they were, Ryan, you were right to say that they were sharks circling prey without actually taking a bite because I I thought for stretches of the first half and even stretches of the second half, Real Madrid did a fairly good job of compressing space. They made it really hard for PSG to attack and really get into zone 14 and create there. And the moments of danger that PSG were creating mostly came from wider areas, which is fine. That's what we see a lot in soccer now as teams have taken steps to protect the area on, on top of their box and protect their box. 
teams have to move out wide. That's why we see Manchester City and Pep Guardiola attack those outer corridors of the box and those half spaces, and a ton of teams do that. PSG tried to do that in the first half, and really the, the name of their attacking game plan was Mbappe. And there's so many sequences where Mbappe is driving at Carvajal early on. Graham, I think you tweeted, uh, no, you didn't tweet, you put in our Slack, Carvajal is holding on for dear life or something to that effect. And it really was true. Fifth minute, Mbappe drives at Carvajal. Eighth minute, Mbappe drives at Carvajal. Thirteenth minute, he then gets in behind him in the 18th minute. And then uh, it, it's Mendes uh, running at uh, Carvajal in the 26th minute. PSG were trying to put pressure on the right side of Real Madrid's defense. They broke in a few times in the first half, but really the second half is when they started creating danger. The the penalty that Messi misses, it has saved from Courtois, comes from Mbappe driving at Carvajal. This was coming after that first half. There's a a sequence then even earlier in the first half where PSG have this unreal bit of of possession play and combination. It's Verratti who plays this ball on the floor into Hakimi, who's tucked inside more centrally in this moment inside the box. Then it's Hakimi quick to Mbappe, who gets a a really nice first touch and shoots, and Courtois makes another good save in that sequence. You could see PSG starting to break Real Madrid down and break through those cracks and ultimately I think they they totally deserve to win this game because of how they controlled the game because of the talent advantage that they had and and Real Madrid for their part they were awful in this game right I think there was some value in how they approached things trying to compress space defensively but when they got on the ball they looked old they looked sloppy they looked out of their depth this was was one of the worst offensive attacking performances I think I've ever seen from Real Madrid and it's hard to have that in a in a Champions League game against PSG Although, to be fair to them, they do have a home leg to, to try and restore some of the uh, issues that they th- created here. I think the biggest disappointment for Real Madrid was that midfield unit. If you look at the, the individual quality of these two teams, we've spoken previously about how PSG's midfield, it's not its not quite set yet. There's a bit of imbalance to their attack and their, and their midfield and how those two link up. And then you look at Real Madrid and that midfield unit of Casemiro, Modric and, and Kroos. I know they're all getting on a little bit, but they they still have the ability to dictate games, and, and Modric in particular has been excellent this season. Kroos as well has been has been really good this season in the Liga for Real Madrid, and so the fact that they were just unable at all, I know it wasn't the game plan for them to be possession heavy and for them to have lots of ball in the centre of the, of the of the pitch, but that they were unable to do that at, at all at any point in the game, really. Yeah, they did do some good work defensively and closing up some space, as, as you say, Joe, but they, it just never felt like they were they were ever able to get any sort of meaningful possession. For a midfield tr- trio of that quality, that, that is really disappointing. And Verratti kind of showed them oh, yeah. how it was done. He was he had one of his best games, at, I was, I was going to say for PSG, for anyone. I think he said one of his, had one of his best games ever. He was sensational and he just kind of ran all over the three of them. Um, so yes, I agree, Joe. They did look rather old in this match. Graham, I'm so glad you brought up Verratti because he was insanely good in this game. Defensively, he was everywhere. And, and we talked about earlier how Neymar makes this team better when he comes on the field. And that's true in the attack, certainly. But the, the challenge with PSG has always been this season, really in the past as well, how do you balance the attacking line with, with the midfield and the back line, right? Because the attackers don't put in a ton of work defensively outside of Angel Di Maria, who put in an absolute shift in this game, I thought, pressing. But how do you how do you balance that? And Verratti in this game was kind of the key to that in my mind. He was everywhere. He was stepping forward at times to lead the press. He was helping to man mark and really shadow the Real Madrid central midfield trio. He was doing everything defensively for this team, covering for Messi, covering for Mbappe, covering for even his own central midfield partners. He was phenomenal defensively. He was really strong on the ball as well, progressing, providing some line breaking passes. He was, for my mind, probably the best non-killing Mbappe player on the field in this game. <laughs> Quite an accolade there. 
you'll get no arguments from me on that one, Joe, because I thought Di Maria was critical to what PSG wanted yeah. to do. I also think he wears down that that Madrid defense such that when Neymar comes on, you have to feel for the Madrid defenders to have, <laughs> to have run as much as they did and then be like, oh, great, fresh Neymar. This should be fun. I take a slightly different view than you two in that I think if if Mbappe doesn't get that late winner, there's obviously the penalty as well that Messi uh, has saved, as Ryan mentioned. But I think... If those two things don't happen, this is sort of Madrid's game plan bearing out. Because I think they were trying to basically not compete with PSG on a speed level or a physicality level, but almost get PSG to play their game and slow it down and be sort of plotting. And that's what stood out to me was that when PSG would have possession in uh, Madrid's sort of defensive third, there was never an aggressive step. They were never trying to win the ball back aggressively. It was always like, oh, he's on the ball? Okay, I'll slide over. Oh, he passed it to this guy? Now I'll slide over. It was always about getting between the attacker and the goal, but never with a, a, a ridiculous amount of intensity, basically. It was just sort of show them one way, slow them down, and then if we hit on the break, we can hit on the break. If not, again, I saw a ton of slow possession from Real Madrid, and I think they really wanted PSG to eventually play their game. I think maybe they weren't as ready for the the high intensity, the high pressing from PSG. And so I think in some ways I can see what Madrid wanted to do, but in other ways at the end of the day when I think 20 minutes in, it was 60% PSG possession. The final stat was I think 57% to PSG. That cannot make Madrid fans particularly uncomfortable or comfortable, nor can zero shots on target. So I I think I can understand what uh, Madrid wanted to do, but I think it did end up ultimately failing. And now here we are with PSG and the advantage. That's what I was going to say, Taylor, was I, I think if they had got a, away with a nil-nil draw, I personally would have thought they'd been quite lucky to get that because I can't I can't believe it was part of their plan to have, as you say, zero shots on target. I can't believe it was part of their plan to leave Carvajal, as Joe mentioned, isolated so many times against Kylian Mbappe. And eventually that ends up telling in, in the, in the scoreline. Had it not told in the scoreline, I think they would have got away with one. I'm not sure. I would have totally put that down to their game plan. But they, they were very close to getting what, what they wanted, which I think was a, a nil-nil draw. In, in terms of the game plan, one of the big narratives around this game was the elimination of the away goals rule. Lots of people I saw on social saying, you know, oh, Madrid wouldn't have played like that with the away goals rule. It's ruined things. I, I didn't quite agree with that um, that viewpoint because, well, for starters, away teams playing defensively is not a new concept. And I think it's just kind of flipped things on their head a little bit. With the old rule with away goals, there'll be circumstances where a home team would sit back and play like that in a second leg, trying not to concede. I mean, I'm sure we've seen Atleti do that dozens of times, manage games, manage two-leg games like that. And with the old rule, PSG wouldn't have attacked like they did so much. And also Inter Milan, who we'll talk about later. That's the beauty of this lack of wiggles to me. It's a team like PSG absolutely going for it in the home leg and, and being really exciting. And I think I'd rather have a KG first leg than a KG second leg, if we look at it like that. Uh, Graham, what do you think about that, the, the, the elimination of the wiggles rule? And I, I don't see it as an excuse necessarily for what Real Madrid did here. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule for all games. So, for instance, in this match, I have to admit that it got to a point where Real Madrid were just offering nothing in attack. And I'm thinking, if their way goals rule is still around, there's there's just more conviction to the to their play. They're really going for that away goal because they know it's more valuable than just a you know a home goal, I guess, for PSG. But you're right to mention the Liverpool Inter game because when Liverpool go one 0 up in that match away from home, spoiler alert, um, they if if away goes around, you think, well, that time is maybe done and dusted already. But 
um, when they score, you know, you think, well, there's no away goals anymore. So it's actually, if Inter score, then it's still level tie. So I, I think it really depends on the dynamic of the match. Um, and in, in this match, I, I have to say that it did cross my mind that away goals might have made it a little bit more compelling. But it would have made PSG less compelling, surely? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. I still think in the past, a home team still attacked um, because it's a, they want to make the most of home advantage. I just think we've lost a little bit of when that scoreline is nil-nil, the incentive to go and get a goal if you're the away team has been slightly diminished. I'm not saying it's not there at all because obviously you want to win the match and Liverpool did it against Inter, but I, I do think it's been slightly diminished a little bit. I think nil-nil as an away team is now a better result than it used to be, is how I'd put it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, Taylor, one name we haven't really mentioned much in this conversation is Lionel Messi, who uh, has now missed five of 23 Champions League penalties. Um, what do we make of him here? I mean, f- from my perspective, he was still good. He's still creating chances. He's still putting pressure on, still uh, you know, m- moving the ball forward. But maybe, maybe there was a baton passing of sorts here, Taylor. Well, I, I think Joe hit the nail on the head there. I think the where he was utilized was dropping in, having a little bit of freedom, but as we've seen from him in the past, not having a ton of defensive responsibility either. And so I think that means then that he's going to be on the ball, he's going to be creating at times, but he is not going to be the focal point of the attack. And so, yeah, in that way, I would say there is the baton being passed to Mbappe, at least for this season. We'll see what happens at the end. Uh, but I, I think... This overall, I think, was just a really good game from Pochettino, and I think he used Messi well. He used him in ways that actually used him, but I think he also used him a little bit as a decoy at at times. And I think having him drop in, having Di Maria go central opens up that entire right-hand side for Ashraf Hakimi, who is such a ridiculously good player. Uh, I still kind of can't believe that PSG managed to get him with everybody else they've got. Uh, And so you've got Hakimi kind of patrolling the right. You've got Mbappe on the left. You've got Di Maria central. You've got Messi on the ball. I think Pochettino made a lot of individuals play a very good team game. And I think that was also a thing Madrid were not expecting. I think they thought if we try to play as a unit, we will out-unit PSG's individuals. And I think it worked the other way around. And compounding the pain, my final note on this one would be Casemiro, Mendy, both picking up yellow cards. The only two players they needed to not get yellow cards. Both of those players suspended. That might mean Marcelo starting at left back. And boy, oh boy, that is going to be a problem for Real Madrid. I think I saw a tweet that says something like it should be illegal to bet on Casemiro to get a yellow card because it did seem like it was a coming at some point. Um, it, this does to me, though, what do you think, Joe? I think this is the most delicately poised of these contests so far, arguably going into the second leg. Do you think it's uh, uh, well, Rebogi obviously have a job to do here. They've got to get at least one goal back. What do you think? Is it um, is this done? It's not done, but I think the odds are pretty heavily in PSG's favor at this point. Between the suspensions, between the gulf in quality, really, that we saw on Tuesday, it's hard for me to see Real Madrid getting back into this thing, but I think we'd be foolish with the team with Benzema and Vinicius Jr. and Modric. And, I mean, we'd be foolish to call this team out at this point. Well, there is one team we can probably call out. It's a certain team from Portugal. We're going to talk about them very shortly after this break. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking Champions League round of 16. We were talking about a delicately poised tie before the break. How about Sporting Lisbon nil, Manchester City 5? Hmm. Uh, Man City, uh, Graham, wearing their awful training kit third shirts terrible. here. Wasn't very yet very terrible. Uh, interesting dynamic in this one as well. Uh, City had four former Benfica players, Jao Cancelo, Ruben Dias, uh, Bernardo and Edison there. And I don't, if you've ever been to Lisbon, like the Benfica Stadium is basically on one side of the freeway to to, to Sportings. It's, they're, they're very close by, so it's quite a rivalry there. So that's interesting to see. Um, this was, Graham, quite a performance from Man City. And this was... Portugal's best defence, allegedly. <laughs> and they got rather taken apart a few times. They they did, I think it's fair to say. I think the scoreline tells us that. Um, I actually think the scoreline also reflects how this match went. You know, sometimes you get a 4 or 5 nil, and it's a team that's just taken all their opportunities. But Guardiola actually came out after this match and said that his, he was unhappy with how his team played p- periods of this game, that they could play better. And the scary thing is... I, th- I think he's right, uh, which is which is bizarre. Uh, Guardiola, the, the the way that they set up, I found really interesting. So he set up his team in a four one three two, and you had the, a wide two in attack, and that just completely ripped Sporting to shreds. They just couldn't handle it. You had the centre backs Laporte and Diaz carrying the ball up the pitch. They just had a lot of freedom, and and they were feeding balls into the wide attackers and over the top. And Sporting were just getting stretched and turned very easily. And Stones was making inside runs and De Bruyne was providing angles and City kept on creating these three on twos and three uh, fours on threes in midfield and attack. And I thought Sterling and Mares in particular were, were very impressive. But to be honest, they were they were pretty impressive all over all over the pitch. And um Taylor and Joe, you know how both of you guys are jittery about the USA's chances of qualifying for the World Cup? Not really because of the actual evidence you have in front of you, but because of like the PTSD of what happened for the last World Cup qualification, you know, we've spoken about that. Yes, I think I'm familiar. Yes. <laughs> I think it's a similar situation with Manchester City. There is absolutely no evidence in front of us all that suggests City won't win the Champions League this season. By my measure, and by a lot of people's measure, I think they are the best team in Europe right now. I think they're better than they were last season when they won the Premier League title and made the, the Champions League final. And I think the only reason people are a bit jittery about their chances is because they, they, because of what's happened in the past, because they have stumbled when people haven't expected them to stumble. But in terms of the tangible evidence of the team in front of us, for me, there's there is a chance that they just stroll this whole thing and and they just they just go all the way and barely break us break a sweat. Because yes, they will face better teams in Sporting Lisbon, but if you look at how they're doing in the Premier League, where um, there's some good teams they face in the Premier League and how they've done against PSG as well in this tournament I know they did actually lose to them in the group stage but they're some team man like they, they are I, incredible yeah. I'm, I think this is the best Guardiola team from uh, City I should say not better than his Barcelona team this is the best Guardiola City team we've seen 
Uh, yeah, no argument to me, Graham. I would be shocked if they don't, at the very least, make the final, if not win it outright. Uh, I guess it depends on who they end up drawing in their side of the bracket. But yeah, this performance was excellent. I agree with you, Graham, that it could have maybe even been better. But I think when we talk about what uh, Guardiola has done historically, where there's some overthinking, he gets things just a little bit too far, and then he ends up kind of imploding. I wonder if this time around with Man City, if if he sort of has the squad he's needed and has got everybody who now has bought in, who's on board, he's gotten rid of players who don't fit. And in this game, I thought one interesting wrinkle overall from this Champions League uh, round of games was that that 4-3-1-2 shape was the shape on paper for a lot of teams. I saw PSG with that, Liverpool, Leipzig, Man City, kind of. But all of them use that shape very, very differently, such that it really was, in my mind, the thesis statement for the idea that like formations kind of don't matter, even if they help us make sense of what's happening. Because Man City just had so much movement and players shifting into spaces and then vacating those spaces for others to occupy, changing formations, changing numbers in defense and in attack. And I don't know how you defend that. I don't know how you deal with that. They don't have any obvious vulnerabilities in my mind. And I don't see any reason for Pep to need to overthink it because in the past, I think it's been he's going up against teams who can sort of challenge them, maybe are the favorite over whatever team Pep might be coaching. I struggle to think of a team that will have enough problems, like maybe PSG, but even there, I think they could run into some issues. So I think this is a very good Man City team, and I will be surprised if they don't make that final, if not win it. Uh, don't don't count on Pep not to overthink it, though, Taylor. I mean, yeah, there's always that. There. There's always <laughs> that. Uh, Joe, what did you make of this one? In t- um, I mean, sporting... The defending let them down terribly in many instances. That that, th- that third goal for Phil Foden, where he was basically three yards out, got past two defenders, had time to look up and do like a, almost a no look finish from like two yards out, it was a bit embarrassing for them. And like their their formation, sort of a three four two one, or was it a three four huge gap for City to do what they want two <laughs> one? Oh, Ryan, yeah, you and I talked about that goal that Foden scored yesterday, and both were were mentioning how poor the defending was from Sporting. I have in my notes in all caps and in italics, Sporting should do much better here, and they should, right? You can't afford to give up that kind, those kind of moments to anyone. You really cannot afford to give up those moments against City, where you don't get the ball out of your own box in those situations when you, you absolutely could have. Those were unfortunate situations for Sporting, and, and you can't win games against City if you're going to pull out that kind of defending. But Ryan, to even address your you know, three, four, the, the, the giant gap in sporting shape. Right? I'm going to mess up the numbers if I try. <laughs> but the, the giant gap there, City made that gap look giant, right? I mean, sporting had a, a pretty well-defined defensive structure. I thought they're in this 5-2-3, 5-4-1 block. See, I did it. I got the numbers. They're in this, this, this back five with two really central midfielders in their midfield and then two narrow wingers who will sometimes drop back to provide more width in that midfield line. But to, to really counter that from City, to, to really counter that from Sporting, City had their two number eights in this game. It was Kevin De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva pushed up really outside Sporting's two number sixes, outside their, their two de facto central midfielders, and just behind their narrow wingers. And that gave, that positioning for, for Silva and Kevin De Bruyne gave Sporting absolute fits. It was like this, this really midfield overload with wide forwards in Sterling and Mares. In the positioning of those two number eights, Silva and De Bruyne, were giving sporting fits because, number one, they were able to facilitate switches out to the wing. They were middlemen, really relaying the ball out wide. Kevin De Bruyne does that, I believe, on uh, on Foden's goal, the one we just roasted sporting's defending for. So they're able to facilitate those switches out to the wing. They're able to receive the ball behind or outside sporting's midfield line. Really good positioning in between the lines. That's exactly where you want to be. 
And number three, they were able, those eights were able to run forward into the half spaces in those Man City zones that I mentioned earlier, right? City are so good at that. And Bernardo, especially in this game, was getting into that left-sided Man City zone. The first goal that City scores, Riyad Mahrez, seventh minute, Cancelo plays the ball to Bernardo in that space. And, and a couple actions later, it's a goal from Riyad Mahrez. A similar thing happens in the 44th minute for Bernardo's goal. He makes a trailing run in that space after starting in that narrow, just outside the two number sixes for sporting, but just behind their midfield line as well, space. City were so, so good with their positioning in those spaces, and I think that won them this game. Joe, to add on to that, uh, for that third goal, uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the ball being kind of played out wide, that big switch, and then that's what allows that attack to happen. Going back and watching how this play develops, you have to go back a very, very far distance because I think like maybe two minutes before this goal, Sporting have a shot, it goes over, it's a goal kick, we get some replays, and when we cut back, Adairson is already on the ball around the penalty spot. So assuming that there have been a couple passes in there, this goal is a 20-pass sequence at minimum. And it's mostly in Man City's half or around midfield. And they're just moving the ball slowly. It's two, three, four touch passing. And then as they start to pull Sporting apart a little bit and open up some of those gaps, Joe, I agree agree with you again. They created all those spaces. Then once they have Sporting exactly where they want them, it's that switch and then they're away. And from the time they play it out wide... I think it's six seconds from going from midfield to the back of the net. A lot of that is Riyad Mahrez kind of dancing on the ball before he ends up playing the ball in. But I think the way they kind of move, keep the ball moving and probe, but shift the opponent into exactly how they want them to be or where they want them to be, and then lightning fast attack and get that goal. The the discussion will be about why Foden could get in there so easily and what that means about Sporting's defense. But I think so much of the buildup is worth noting for just how dominant Man City were across the board. Oh, just imagine being a sporting player and you're at half time, you're four nil down, and you think we've got to play these guys for another two and a quarter hours. Goodness, yeah, me. yeah, you could Not see fun. it after that fourth goal when they all very slowly get up and sort of turn around. You could tell it was not maybe the game that they were looking forward to finishing. I, I did, I did like how all the sporting fans stood up at the end though and gave them all a innovation in the final minute of, yeah. of stoppage time because I think the, the context for that is with Sporting you know this team has won the Portuguese title after after a long drought they've made the last 16 of the Champions League and I think there's a recognition from the fans that m- maybe this is the end of the road for this group I think a few of these players could be picked off by bigger European clubs in the, in the summer and um, you know Porto and Benfica they maybe have a higher watermark and just being able to stay good all the time sporting kind of needs a golden generation or a golden group and they have had that the last couple of years so it was almost it was almost like a thank you for not this performance but everything that's come in the last kind of year for that club and I thought that was quite nice yeah and, and this is the same sporting team we should note that like I, I believe had the fan unrest and had players leaving the club en masse and not feeling safe and there was a huge rift between the club and the supporters so for them to then be giving a standing ovation to this uh, current iteration, yeah, speaks extra volumes to me. Uh, the last time they were at this stage, the round of 16, was 2008-09. Um, they faced Bayern Munich at that stage. They lost 12-1 on aggregate. So they are um, <laughs> maybe going for something similar this time around. This might be their level. I'm not sure. Um, that, so that was, a, that was Sporting Man City. That, that one's probably done. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, uh, into Milan and Liverpool at the San Siro. We'll be right back. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, 
it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's head to the San Siro at 50% capacity. Inter Milan, nil, Liverpool, two. Uh, Inter in the round of 16 for the first time in 10 years. They've got quite a difficult task ahead of them at Anfield in the second leg now. Liverpool stealing this one at the end with goals from Firmino and Mr Salah. Um, Joe, Inter looked really good and really threatening for a large part of this game. Or at least until um, Mr. Klopp did a triple substitution, which changed things up quite a bit. Yep, I think that's a pretty accurate read of this game. There's more nuance, and I'm sure we'll get into some of those things. But, Let's. man, I liked a lot of what Inter did in this game. They didn't back down. And I know they're playing at home, so it's probably unreasonable to expect them to do so. But they were every bit as good for at least large stretches of this game as we've seen them be earlier in this particular competition, earlier in the Serie A season. They came out in this 5-3-2 that Inzaghi often sets them up in. And they were pressing from the start of this one. And they weren't just pressing in a, in a you know, standard kind of way. They were man-marking Liverpool, which is a bold thing to do when the two starting Liverpool wingers are Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane. And when it's Diogo Jota as that nine who is very capable of running in behind you or beating you in midfield. But Inter didn't back down. They did a lot of man-marking in this game. And in the first place, I noticed it was with their midfield. They had their three central midfielders against Liverpool's three central midfielders. Then they bring the wingbacks forward to press the Liverpool fullbacks. Then they had the center backs matched up with Liverpool's front line. And that didn't always happen, 
but in so many different spaces, especially when Liverpool were trying to build up in Liverpool's own defensive third or really in the middle third before they'd settled into possession in the attacking half. Man, Inter were all over them trying desperately to deny space. And I, I think they did a good job of that. They limited a lot of the the really high-quality chances that we normally see from Liverpool. And then once Liverpool were able to progress the ball and establish that possession, Inter would drop into a zonal 5-3-2 block, the kind of shape that we normally see from them in their own half. It was it was clearly that man-marking and then switching to the zonal marking deeper in their half. It was clearly happening for Inter, and it was clearly a part of Inzaghi's game plan for this game. And I thought it frustrated Liverpool and to the point where they really did need some juice off the bench to turn the tides in this game. Mm-hmm. Taylor, I was I was quite frustrated with Inter actually because they they did properly go for this one. It was quite high intensity. You know, Perisic and Vidal looked pretty good as they were going forward. They were stretching Liverpool at the back, who were you know doing their high line thing as they do. But it, but Taylor, it was that that final ball, and it sounds a bit cliche, but that final ball was lacking so often. It was so often they just had one more pass to make to get it to Martinez or to or to Jeco, and it didn't come through. You can credit Liverpool's backline for for stopping that from happening, but it was there were lots of moments where Inter could have. Really got ahead here, I thought, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not dissimilar in some ways from the conversation we had about Madrid and PSG. If if things go a couple bounces differently, we're having a different conversation. That's kind of how football goes. Here, I, I think also part of that, though, is Inter getting tired. And I agree with everything Joe said. It's it's a thing we've seen from Inter in the Milan derby most recently, is, is that sort of the man marking, the stifling any sort of midfield possession, but then also limiting the channels, and then using your center backs to keep the ball moving once you win the ball back. And, and I think Inter tried to do that exact same thing here, and I think caused Liverpool a lot of problems. But the thing that, that stood out to me uh, in the moment was at the very end of the first half, there's two little things. There's a ball over the top to Dzeko, uh that he has a slightly heavy touch. And it could have been that's one of those moments you're talking about, Ryan, where if he has a maybe a little bit more controlled touch, he sets himself up for the shot. Maybe it's 1-0 at the end of the half. There's another one as well when Denzel Dumfries is played in down the channel over the top. It's bouncing. It's going out of bounds. And I think would have been a, an impressive play to control it and keep it in. So not trying to like discredit his effort or anything like that. But I, what I found myself wondering there at the end of that half was, if this is the start of the game, do they make both of those plays? And is this Inter trying to match Liverpool, basically pound for pound, blow for blow, stride for stride, and not being able to have the physicality or the endurance to handle it? And so in the second half, Firmino comes in. I think that is the start of very smart changes from Jurgen Klopp. I think Inter... Because they're a little bit more gassed, I think start to go direct, start to look for these long balls into the channels, long balls over the top, and they start to do that with increasing frequency. And I get the idea of looking for the counter, looking to exploit Liverpool's high line, and maybe stretching Liverpool a bit yourself, but it also means if you're going direct every time, you run the risk of just giving the ball right back to Liverpool, and that's where this game finishes, is with Liverpool having dominant possession numbers, with Liverpool having more of the ball, and I think as this half goes on, uh, Inter get more and more fatigued. You can see it in the very end when Arturo Vidal is waving everybody forward to continue the press. The back line isn't stepping anymore. The midfield is jogging out. And now you've got these 15 to 20 yard gaps between those lines that you absolutely didn't have in the first half. And I think it's a credit to Inter for the way they went about this. But in my mind, at least, it's also a credit to Liverpool for finding a way through. It's a, it's a big credit to Liverpool, Taylor. This was, I would say, this basically a perfect night for them. A, a win against what's purported to be Italy's finest team, a clean sheet. I mean, maybe an injury for Jota, which we're going to keep an eye on with his ankle. But otherwise, they couldn't have asked much more from this game, could they? 
I mean, I, no, I don't think so. And, and I think especially when you've got, as you said, Jota coming out with injury, Firmino comes in, you've got Harvey Elliott starting. Uh, that midfield of Elliott, Fabinho, and Thiago is probably not the ideal midfield when it comes to Liverpool, but I thought they got performances from players they needed. Konate, I thought, was excellent, both in his distribution and just his defensive work. Virgil van Dijk is obviously terrifying to, de- to defenders, and we now know that for sure because Lautaro Martinez wanted no part of him. Uh, and yeah, I think this went about as well as it could have for Liverpool and it wasn't the prettiest of games it's not like they were comprehensively dominant like Man City or even PSG to some extent but I think that they still found a way to win and it wasn't just luck it wasn't a long ball into the box at the very end of the game cough cough Bayern it was them doing what they do (laughs) grinding Inter down and finding a way to win even if they're set piece goals or it's a set piece goal it still to me was just such a good performance from Liverpool I would expect them to also make a pretty lengthy run in this competition. That Taylor, that thing you mentioned there, Martinez against Van Dijk, was, from the Inter perspective, the most frustrating thing about this performance. From him. There was a moment, I think it was in the first half, where the whole pitch opens up for Martinez and he ha- he's got a one-on-one with Van yep. Dijk. And you mm-hmm. go, okay, go. Like, go at him. And Van Dijk obviously is brilliant, arguably the best centre-back in the world. But in the group stage, in a similar situation, he was smoked by Antoine Griezmann. And so he's he's not untouchable. You can you can get past him. There was a there was a a statistic a couple of years ago when he was absolutely at his best, where Van Dijk hadn't been dribbled past for about a year. I don't think he's as strong as he used to be in that in that sense. I do think injury has impacted them in that way. So there was an opportunity there for Martinez. The other thing that was frustrating was they kept on. I thought Inter generally got their approach right. But and we we've praised Zeko about how he slotted into this team, but they kept on giving him balls where I was like, you guys still think Lukaku's yeah, playing for you agreed. up front. Like, this is perfect opportunities, a perfect opportunity for Lukaku. These are chances he would have relished. But Zeko isn't Lukaku. They play very different sort of games. So it, it, that was frustrating was, I thought their game plan was right, but their their front line just didn't really want a part of it or was unable to make the most of that game plan. Graham, I thought what was interesting about this game is you could almost tell its story in the individual battles. You mentioned um, with Van Dyke there. I mean, on the flanks, you had Vidal going at Robertson with all the, the poop housery that that entailed. And on the other side, you had Trent against Perisic as well. It was a lot of fascinating battles on this game. The the, the Alexander-Arnold-Perisic one, I thought, was, was really interesting because, to be honest, Perisic did a lot better in that battle than I expected that he would. We pinpointed in our preview that Alexander-Arnold, what he's doing, the attacking numbers that he is he's putting up, I think Joe detailed some of them. No one's really done that in his, his position. We've, he's doing things we've never really seen before. And so I expected that a lot of Liverpool's creativity was going to come from him. And it, and it didn't really in this match. And in, in fact, Perisic had him on toast a few times. And there was some there were, there were points where Van Dijk was furious with Alexander-Arnold for his lack of, I don't know, tracking back or allowing Perisic to, to get past him too easily. Perisic seemed to be getting to the byline quite, uh, quite easily. So in terms of the individual battle, that, that was one that I actually chalked up to... Inter, Inter Milan. I thought Perisic had the better of Trent Alexander-Arnold. We'll see how the Anfield game goes because I think it's unlikely that Alexander-Arnold will have two underwhelming games in a row in this competition. But yeah, I thought that was another thing that Inter got right. They got a lot of things right, but I think Liverpool's squad depth in the end, if you look at the players that they bring off the bench, they basically bring on, on a new midfield unit in Henderson and Keita who... 
basically clamped things down in the middle of the pitch and then Inter's big change before they made that I think they made like a kind of weird triple change at the end which was almost like damage limitation but when they were still in the game at 0-0 the change they make is Alexis Sanchez um, which when you're wanting explosiveness in the attack I know that's what he used to do but what is he now like 33 or something 32 he's maybe not the player you would ideally want to bring that well that was that was the difference between these teams wasn't it the depth uh, Graham, you look at who who Liverpool could bring on, you know, Cater and Henderson and, and Luis Diaz, a new shiny new signing, and then Inter bringing on Matteo Darmian and players like that. It's it's just it shows the gap between yeah. these teams, doesn't it? Absolutely, and and Luis Diaz, I thought we, we've only really had a glimpse of him. I think he's played three substitute games in in the Premier League, and then obviously he's a he's a substitute here as well. So we've only really had a glimpse of him, but. He he already looks the business for Liverpool. He looks like a perfect Liverpool player. I actually thought this match was set up for him to make the difference at 0-0 when he comes on. The prediction I would have made is Luis Diaz is going to be the one that gets the goal here because it just felt like the match was a little bit stretched at that point. There are plenty of one-on-one opportunities and he he obviously can make the most of that opportunity opportunity that is in his his skill set. So it wouldn't it won't be long, I predict, until he is he's scoring some big goals and involved in some big moments for Liverpool. We're seeing Liverpool's succession plan right before our eyes, right? I mean, that's what yeah. this Luis Diaz signing is. And the early returns are really, really good. Graham, I completely agree with you. Diaz was bright almost the, the seconds after he comes onto the field. It's a 60-second minute, so I guess it's, it's 180-ish seconds after he comes on the field for Mane. But he cuts inside on his right foot, passes the ball off, then makes a really direct and, and smart run into the box and gets a shot off in the 60-second. I mean, he's active. He's right-footed. He likes to get touches, but he can also be vertical. He is a strong presence on that left side. I expect we're going to be seeing more of him this season and certainly more of him should Mane leave. And even if he doesn't, as as next season progresses. Uh, the one thing I wanted to add, uh, because I saw a lot of people talking about how like all this shows that the Premier League has so much more money, that Liverpool will have more depth. And that was all it was, that Liverpool had more depth and they ended up getting the win. And, th- and there's truth to that. But uh, people should listen to the Soccer 101 uh, we're going to put out later this week. But having done a lot of reading about the investment that's gone into Inter, I will say they have spent plenty of money and they had lots and lots of depth and then kind of shot themselves in the foot, had to get rid of some of that depth. And now here they are. But this is still an Inter team that have spent a ton of money had had and has a lot of talent and I agree Liverpool do have plenty of depth they have the Premier League resources behind them but I I guess I just I have a slight reaction to the way some people were painting this as like plucky upstarts Inter Milan going up against this juggernaut and it was just kind of unfair from the jump and it's like these these are the reigning champions of Italy who previously were very, very good under Antonio Conte, remained very good under Simone Inzaghi, and I think maybe got the game plan a little bit wrong. Graham, I agree with you about Dzeko maybe not quite being Lukaku, but I think uh, maybe painting Inter as these sort of put-upon upstarts was, uh, was a bit too far for me. Taylor, the, the key is not just having money but spending it well isn't it you just yeah. have to look at the two manchester teams to to see that and and also just to spare you the uh the ryan bailey ammunition taylor <laughs> so it's not always <laughs> on manchester united just like it's always on scotland at the same time or just before uh, Liverpool beat Inter Atletico Madrid who have also spent a lot of money recently they were losing 1-0 at home to levante yeah. um so there's a, there's more evidence that it's not purely down to money all right. Uh, any any reason that this tie is not over, Joe? What do you think? Is this one done? You're a predictions king. 
Yeah, this one's done. I, I am certainly not as pro Liverpool after this game as I think some others are, but uh, Liverpool with that two goal lead results wise, they really couldn't have asked for anything more, even if I think parts of their performance was lacking. I do think Nico Barilla makes a difference in this game. Yeah. I think there's certain things that play out differently with him in the midfield. He was obviously suspended. Uh, he'll be back for, for the, the return fixture at Liverpool. And no, might I don't think he make... is, actually. Oh, is he still suspended? Uh, yeah, never mind. Right, Two-game suspension. Yeah, never mind, they're done. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, why don't we move oh, on to the man. final game we're going to talk about from this Champions League week. Uh, Salzburg won, Bayern Munich won. Oh, yeah. The Austrian champs against the German champs. Uh, Bayern Munich coming off a big loss at the weekend in the league. They had a game here... I think many expected them to be comfortable with. Uh, they were not comfortable with it. We had a Darmo opening the scoring with an assist from Rendon Aronson that he completely 100% meant. And Kingsley Command getting the equaliser around the 90th minute. Um, Joe, let's start with Bayern Munich, who had a bit of an interesting formation. Made some decisions. Did Julian Nagelsmann here? Left them quite open at the back. I'm getting a bit like Stewie and Family Guy. I got you. I got you. It's not. It's not like this was foreign territory for Bayern in their formation, though, right, Ryan? This is the shape that we've seen them use in in some regularity over the last stretch without Alfonso Davies, who's out with myocarditis. I mentioned that in my preview of Bayern Munich. They come out in this three-four-three shape. Roughly very fluid from them under Nagelsmann. But it's Mane, excuse me, Mane. It's Sane and Thomas Muller as those two narrow wingers. You have Kingsley Coleman as the left wing back. You have Serge Gnabry as the right wing back. You have Tolisso and Kimmich as the double pivot and Lewandowski up as the nine. And then you have the back three. So you have players in, in different spaces, sure. And the positional alignment on papers is pretty good. But man, I thought for large stretches of this one, Bayern struggled to break through Salzburg. And I think that's borne out in the numbers a little bit. Bayern didn't create their usual amount of chances and their usual tally of expected goals. But, I mean, there were, there were sequences here where Bayern had lots of possession, but I thought there were, there were some gaps in their possession shape. The wingbacks, Gnabry and Coman, were really, really high. Like, like super high, filling the, the wide spaces of that front five that I talked about that's so popular earlier on in this show. They were filling those wide areas. They weren't even really wingbacks at all in possession, which made it challenging because of the distance between them and the three center backs. It made it challenging for Bayern to progress the ball through those players. They were almost not even options for Bayern early on in their possession. So they were trying to overload midfield against Salzburg, and they had some success doing that. But from, from the Salzburg perspective in this game under Matthias Jasla, they were excellent, I thought, defensively. Man, they're in this 4-4-2 diamond, Brendan Aronson at the 10, behind two athletic mobile forwards, technical players as well. They absorbed pressure. They combated midfield overloads. They shifted horizontally, and they, they applied pressure on those center backs to make it difficult for Bayern's outside center backs to stride forward to try and shorten the gap between them and the wide attacking players, who in this game were the wingbacks. Salzburg did so much good stuff. When they'd win the ball, they would have one of the forwards already high, ready to run in behind Bayern's back line and lean all the way into that counterattacking game plan. They frustrated Bayern. They didn't create a ton of chances themselves, but they get that goal in the what the 21st minute. And after that, man, it felt like this might be a Salzburg win, which would have been a huge result for them. A draw is still a pretty darn nice result, too, though. Joe, um, so, sorry if I misinterpreted or misheard you. Did you say that Bayern have done this f- formation before? It's kind of a 3-2-4-1. Yeah, yeah, they did it. I mean, we talked about it a couple weekends ago in, against Leipzig. I didn't watch the, the Buckham game that you guys did, but I believe they played a similar shape. No, okay, they, they may be in the back four. four in that game. Yeah. But they've done that at least two or three times under Nagelsmann over the last month and a half or yeah, so. Yeah, Bayern-Leipzig okay. was, I think, the exact same 
Yeah, the exact same lineup and the exact same formation. Did Upa Bacano not playing that one either? Nope. My uh, Hernandez, Sule, and Pavar. The, the difference the difference in this game, though, was for me that the wingbacks in this game for Bayern are pushed so high up the pitch that they're not yeah. really wingbacks at all. That, yeah. that was, for me, why Bayern, it felt like they were so exposed at the back. And I have I have to say, like, Ryan, I, I'm kind of with you in that, okay, they've played this formation before, but I hadn't really seen this narrow an approach yeah. from right. Bayern at narrow. the back. And it was a little bit like, guys, do, uh, Bayern, do you, like, you do realise how Salzburg play. They played... Not to, to blow my own, my own horn or anything, but we, when we previewed the <laughs> when we previewed Salzburg, like this is the game that we said they were going to play. So I have to believe that Nagelsmann knew that, um, and so it was it was bizarre that they they allowed so much space in those wide areas for Salzburg to just kind of clip balls into those channels for their two forwards, who obviously have lots of pace and lots of ability, to run onto, and then all of a sudden Bayern are turned and they've got two or three centre backs against two forwards. Uh, Salzburg forward so it, it, it was a peculiar one for me the approach from Bayern don't you think though if you're Nagelsmann and I, I don't necessarily think that his approach paid off a ton in this game but logically and theoretically don't you think if you're Nagelsmann you want your center backs to stay tight because I agree with you guys it, it looked a little awkward from Bayern the giant gap between center backs and wing backs and the center backs themselves were pretty tight and compressed which is the point that you all are just making but if you're Bayern, don't you don't you want to focus on that space? You don't want your center backs particularly spread. You want them together because when Salzburg counter, they counter narrow through those forwards and through the 10, which in this game was Brendan Aronson and it has been for so much of this season. That's the space you want to compress. You don't really care about allowing space out wide. You don't want to give it freely necessarily, but you don't want to prioritize defending those areas. I can see logically what Nagelsmann was trying to do by keeping those center backs tight. It just was still hard to contain Salzburg with the talent they have in Adeyemi and, and Aronson and at the start of this game, Okafor and then Adamu as well. Uh, Joe, I would, I would be, I agree with everything you said. I, I'm inclined to be less charitable to Bayern though, because yes, you absolutely want to keep those three center backs tight because then you don't have as much of a risk of countering right through the middle. You don't have those gaps that can just be easily attacked that it's straight on to goal. You're forcing them out wide. If you're going to counter, then at least we can contain you there and it requires more numbers to make those runs into the box. That makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense is not knowing who is going to step of those three. And that, to me, was the routine problem over and over and over again when it was Adeyemi and uh, Okafor to start when Adamu comes on. It seemed like none of the center backs knew exactly who was supposed to be the one stepping to somebody if, if they dropped in or covering that player if they went a little bit wider. So what routinely would happen was, say, Brendan Aronson gets the ball in transition, and maybe it's just Adeyemi ahead of him. None of those three center backs seemed entirely certain who was supposed to get to Brendan Aronson. So one would go, or another one would go, but then one of them has vacated space, and then you can play the ball through that gap. And that seemed almost suicidally committed to the attack from Bayern Munich. And all I can figure, my my like sort of theory on this, is that Julian Nagelsmann doesn't really trust his defense and is going for just a straight up all out attacking game plan of basically we're going to go at them with five and six attackers at times. Maybe we'll leave one of those central midfielders a little bit deeper. But I saw Taliso and Kimmich usually 20 to 25 yards from goal. I saw the center backs 45 yards from goal or so. And it seemed like they were just trying to go for just suffocate the opposition, go at them relentlessly until you get a goal or two, then you can sit off, they have to get stretched, they have to open up. But if that doesn't happen and they hit you on the break, I think we saw the shortcoming to that game plan in pretty stark contrast last night. Taylor, Bayern quite often have a little downturn just before Christmas and then they destroy everyone after the break. Maybe this is like a two-month delay on their on their slight downturn. Let me Let me put it this way, let me ask you this. 
if Hansi Flick was in charge and had these players, would Salzburg have caused him a problem? I'm not sure if they would have. No, I don't think so. I, I, I think, but that's because there's probably more structure in how they're defending and then more creativity or freedom to the attack. I think that's not what Nagelsmann wants to do. And so... I, like, I think I'm somewhere in between here on, like, I, I agree with Joe that this isn't necessarily an unexpected formation or even overall approach from Bayern. I just think what we saw here was them. I, I honestly think this is another example of a team thinking we're going to roll this team. So let's trial this even more aggressive attacking version of this formation that we've done previously, beat them 4-0, and we can work out some of the kinks and then we'll go back to the league and implement it there. And that obviously was not the case on the day. But I think, yeah, Hansi Flick maybe doesn't have the problems that Nagelsmann did. Maybe he has other problems, or maybe it's just a tighter 1-0 one, one or 0-0 nil, nil game. Uh, but I think Nagelsmann still will, my guess would be, eventually find a way to make this team function better than they are. But speaking of Flick, I did feel like of all of the gigs in Europe, maybe this is an overstatement, but with the number of, of high-profile people who attend Bayern games, when they cut to the box Byron's box and it was like uh the current manager of the German national team like the former goalkeeper for Germany for forever and for Bayern Munich Karl-Heinz Rummenigge like there's so many big names there if you're Julian Nagelsmann that pressure has to be instantaneous which I'm assuming is why in the 44th minute we got a clip of him close up very clearly just hurling a stream of expletives in what I think was English because I recognize some of those words. He was not happy at the end of that first half, and I'm not sure he was happy at the end of this game, but they do get the draw, so at least there's that. He was screaming at someone to go get his Letterman jacket. That I could think. be. That was probably the difference. Where's my longboard? <laughs> exactly. Where is it? <laughs> he was screaming at Jasso going, stop copying me! Yeah. <laughs> Jasso is, is one year younger than uh, than, than Nagelsmann. He's 33 going on 23. There's two the of them. There's I, two I love, of them. I love the fact that uh, Bayern's starting goalkeeper was older than both of them. That was, and I think so too, was Sol- <laughs> one of Salzburg's forwards, maybe? I forget. There was like two different players on the pitch who were older than both of the coaches, which was uh, something else. I also loved, I said it in the Slack, I'll have to post it on my, my personal account because I care less about like getting a takedown notice on my personal one. The, the close-up of Salzburg's coach when they scored against Bayern and him just having the facial expression of like, oh my, like it's what I would look like if my team scored against Bayern. I'm just like, what? This just happened? I don't know how this just happened. It made me so very, very happy. It was a good game for the coach camera is what I'm saying. It was a good game for Salzburg. I thought their work yeah. rate was very good. Yeah. They had a couple of yep. really good players, did they not, Joe? Uh, I've got a stat for you, Joe, uh, from Johnny Cooper from Twitter. Brendan Aronson created five chances against Bayern Munich, the youngest player to create five chances in a Champions League knockout match since Leo Messi against Celtic 14 years ago. Hence, ergo, therefore, Aronson is the new Messi. Yeah, he's the Medford Messi. I mean, come on. It's, it's so obvious, the tie-in there. I thought Aronson was good in this game. I don't think he was anywhere near Messi levels of good and I don't really think he'll ever get there and I'm sure he would probably tell you those things disagree but he was active he, he was running everywhere <laughs> um, he, he put in a Brendan Aronson type of performance when he plays as the 10 as he does for Salzburg he tends to get a decent number of touches especially in those transition opportunities so that Salzburg was really leaning into in this game he was mobile he was trying to start a lot of counters he was trying to play some outlet balls he had a couple of, of those final balls that lead to the the chance creation stat good composure for a shot in the 24th minute um, I, I thought he was good in this game. He's the kind of player that fits really well as the tip of the diamond for a, a really aggressive pressing team. He's not a hyper-creative Mesut Ozil through ball threader type of player. I don't think he will ever be that guy, but he's energetic. He's mobile. He'll make your life really, really hard if you're Bayern Munich or if you're anybody. And uh, that worked out quite well for Salzburg in this game. 
Medford Messi. I've just had to look up where Medford is. I, in Jersey, I only know Springsteen and Soprano stuff. It's not anywhere near those two places. You're learning. <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> um, Graham, any any uh, thoughts on how this one will play out in the second leg? This one is delicately poised scoreline-wise, but yeah, Salzburg have got to go to Munich now. Yeah, Bayern will win this. I, I actually have have kind of started to... Not change my mind about Bayern, but they're maybe not as strong as I thought they were maybe a, f- a few weeks ago. One thing we should mention is they are missing players at the moment. So Manuel Neuer's injured, Leon Goretzka I think makes a big difference to this team, and Alfonso Davies as well probably means they can go back to their their normal for- formation that I think does get the best out of this group. So if those players come back, maybe it's a, maybe it's a different team. But despite my uh, concerns about that defence at the moment, yeah, they're, they're going to get the job done in, in, in the second leg. It's maybe the higher quality teams that you come up against in the later rounds that I would be slightly more concerned about if, if I was Bayern and Nagelsmann. I do think he has questions to answer and there, there is a bit of heat on him in, in the German media right now. They're, they're still the best team in that country. They're still going to win the league, but they haven't been great in their last few matches. I want to stick my flag down in the ground right now for Bayern. I don't know that they're going to win this whole darn thing, but I I have not wavered in my belief in them. They are still a really, really good team, even if yeah, parts of their right. game plan didn't play out. <laughs> I think they're one of the, what, four favorites in this competition right now. Out of the last 16 teams left, I think they're very much poised to make a run. All right. Flag stuck in the ground. Thank you very much, Joe. Uh, pats on heads all round and treats distributed for our Yay. lovely uh, Champions League. Joe roundup. stands by his man, Well Neuer. Is that what I can do with that one? There we go. <laughs> oh, ha, ha, You're welcome. Ha, ha, ha. You're welcome for that one, folks. You're welcome. <laughs> Extra treats for Taylor. <laughs> um, one more thing to cover before we head off into the sunset. Uh, CONCACAF Champions League. Yes. Joe Lowry, a little uh, roundup from you, if you will. We've had a few games. Uh, the standout moment for me of the games we've had so far was NYCFC's Alfredo Morales um, having a shot that hit the underside of the crossbar and the top of the crossbar like a some sort of weird Escher-defying physics thing uh, in their game against Santos de Guapiles. Yeah, that shot from Maxi Morales was insane. I've never seen anything like that before in my life, right? The bottom of the bar, the top of the bar, it still doesn't find the back of the net. But NYCFC in that game were dominant against Santos, right? I mean, it's not uh, the highest level of competition coming from Costa Rica. NYCFC, for their part, not in really great form right now. It's their first competitive game of the season, just as it is for all of the MLS teams in this competition. They looked rusty. Tavon Gray was a bit sloppy. Sean Johnson was a bit sloppy in goal with his distribution. Tyus Magno, I thought, was sloppy at times. Even the, the midfield duo that was influential in this game from NYCFC of Gideon Zalalem and uh, Acevedo, they were sloppy at times. But man, even in spite of the sloppiness, NYCFC was the better team in this game. For me, they are the MLS team that, that is most likely to win this thing this year. And it does feel like a year where MLS has a, a real fighting chance to win this whole darn thing. No Tigres, no Monterey. It's not the strongest uh, edition of this competition for Liga Mekis teams. So I think NYCFC has a good shot. They were dominant in this game, despite some of their sloppiness. The other game that we've seen happen so far from an MLS perspective is CF Montreal away to Santos Laguna. Santos Laguna, of course, at Liga and Equis opponent. And this was a 1-0 win for Santos. Montreal losing on a late goal, 88th minute. So really close for Montreal to getting out of of Mexico with a 0-0 draw. But Santos was the better team in this game. They They were getting shots on goal more consistently. They were applying more pressure than Montreal. 
And there were still good building blocks from Montreal, don't get me wrong. Romel Kyoto trying to make runs in behind as a number nine. Georgi Mihailovic and Torres trying to, to play some of those final balls. Kamal Miller making some runs forward as the left center back. Lots of good building blocks from Wilfred Nance right now, but they're certainly not firing on all cylinders. So those are the two games we've seen happen so far. The New England Revolution have automatically made it into the quarterfinals. Their Haitian opponent had to forfeit due to some visa issues, so they will not be a part of this competition. The Cavalry will not be a part of this competition. New England will wait their next opponent in the quarterfinals. Colorado and, uh, and the Seattle Sounders play tonight, Thursday, February 17th, as we're recording right now. Colorado has Comunicaciones, and Seattle has Montagua. Those are winnable games, both of them, and, and both of those MLS teams should expect to move on, as should NYCFC. Montreal right now is a bit more of a question mark. Indeed. Thank you for the roundup there, Joe. Um, yeah, and the Revolution getting a bye. It's like this, like a, a great tennis player who gets a, a seeding and gets to the next round. Uh, but uh, yeah, the high team, uh, Cavalli, I think you pronounce it, unable to get US visas, as you say. A pain I know all too well. Oh, poor me. <laughs> poor me. Um, but for now, thank you very much, gents. Thank you, Taylor, so much for your contributions. Where they got you, my friend. Graham Rothman, thank you, sir. Thank you, Ryan Billy. Joe Lowry, thanking you. Right back at you. And listener, thank you the mostest. We'll be back soon. Bye. Bye.